You can turn to Genesis chapter 28 is where we find ourselves this morning. Genesis chapter 28. And as our time in Genesis prepares to draw to a close, with this being our second to last sermon in this series, what I hope that we as a church family have gained from this series is the realization that we are really never done with Genesis. What I mean by that is that no matter where we go in our Bibles or in our world, we are standing on the foundations which God has laid for us, either the literal foundations of our world that we are standing on or the foundations of our faith which have their roots here in the book of Genesis. And so the orders and the functions of of how our world and the entire universe operates, all of it a meticulous design of God himself. And so too are the orders and functions of our faith. All of them have been founded upon God's grace and glory revealed to us in the book of Genesis, the beginning. So last week, as we transitioned from Abraham to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob, and so doing, we saw God's intentional design for covenant faith to be generational faith. That faith is intended by God to be passed down from generation to generation, purposefully taught and known and experienced within the home and within the covenant community of faith. And so today, as we dive deeper into Jacob's life, we'll see Jacob go from being he who clutches the heel, the deceiver, to being Israel, he who wrestles with God. One of my favorite books growing up, I I loved to read growing up, and one of my favorite ones that I have read time and time again is The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien. And one of my favorite quotes from The Hobbit that I always remember because it illustrated something so beautifully and gave me such a, a clear picture of what the author was trying to illustrate was this moment in the main character, Bilbo, in this moment in Bilbo's life where he is running through these caverns of this monstrous cave, running from these monsters called goblins, and he's chasing, he's he's bringing up the end of the pack because he's always fallen behind, Bilbo is, and he falls down, and he's just falling and falling and falling, and it knocks him out when he falls to the bottom. And when he wakes up, this is the quote, he wakes up, It says, he opened his eyes, but it was so dark, he wondered if he actually had. And this darkness, that that idea of, of complete pitch black is what we see in Jacob's life as we enter into the story or re-enter into the story this morning here in Genesis 28. Because we find Jacob in a very, very dark spot, not just physically, as he's in the middle of the desert where there's, there's no ambient light. There's only the light of the moon and the stars. But also, spiritually, he is in a very, very dark place. And I want us to pick right back up here in Genesis 28 where we left off last week. Is this scene serves as the perfect synopsis of Jacob's faith up into this point. And this will also serve as the perfect backdrop 
for us moving forward, not only this morning, but next week, as we see the irresistible and the unstoppable nature of God's grace to those who he calls according to his purposes. So I'll ask you to stand one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Let's pray. God, as we encounter you through your word this morning, as your word pierces our hearts and takes root, we pray that it would affect change in our lives, our lives as your people, as your church here at Southside, that we would be overwhelmed by your unstoppable, irresistible grace, and that we would be moved to action, to live and to show grace where we've been shown and to make your gospel known as it's impacted us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. So last week, we wrapped up our sermon at this very point. And I briefly described the events leading up to this particular moment. Now, you see, Jacob finds himself alone in the desert because immediately prior to this, we see Jacob living up to his name which is rightly translated not only as he who clutches the heel, but as we saw last week, it's rightly translated deceiver. And as he's come once again, he's cheated his brother out of what was rightfully his. He's cheated Esau. And now Isaac blesses Jacob, sends him away to find a wife, just as Abraham desired for his son Isaac to have a wife so that the faith could continue. The covenant could carry on. Isaac blesses Jacob, sends him away to find a wife. And now Rachel, Jacob's mother, had arranged this. She had kind of gotten Isaac's ear and told him that he should do this so that, so that Jacob could flee Esau's rage. As this is what Rachel was desiring. So Rachel is conspiring. Jacob is now fleeing his brother's rage. And so to this point in his life, Jacob has lived by one rule. Jacob wants, so Jacob gets. Or rather, Jacob takes. He's lived life according to his own desires. And we have evidences and truths throughout God's word that warn us against such a life. 
Proverbs warns us against such a life. Proverbs 14, 12, if you're taking notes, you can just write that verse out to the side. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or how about Proverbs 16, 9? The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And so this has been Jacob's desires that he would seek life after his way, follow his heart, go after his desires. But we also see this in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And, his law, and on his law he meditates day and day. And night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Why? Because that man is planted in the water of God's word. Or how about Psalm 16? Psalm 16, 7 through 11. You can write that off to the side too. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So we see throughout God's word, the truth that the way of life, the best life, the the incredible life, the only life that we are created for is the life that is lived in the light of and following the path of God's word. But this is not the life that Jacob has lived up until this point. The wisdom literature and God's word itself is full of of the truths of how God's word and God's ways are illuminating and life-giving. It's also full of truths that espouse how our ways Our hearts are destructive and deceitful. And those of us who know Christ know that we are in a constant battle to subdue those natural evil desires that we call our flesh and to walk according to the Spirit. If we're to take an assessment based on these two standards of man's way and God's way and hold Jacob's life up to it to this point, we without a doubt have to say that Jacob has lived a life according to his own way. And this is where it's founded. Alone in the darkness of the desert with a rock for a pillow. As we see, as we pick back up, read there again, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Iran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So, the, so Moses clearly wants us to understand that it is, it is dark, that the sun is set. This is a clear literary uh, use of this literary technique to, to declare how Jacob is leaving a place and entering into physical darkness, but it's using that physical darkness to display this point in his life. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. So Jacob has pursued life to the fulfillment of his every desire. And where has that brought him? Again, alone, in the dark, wandering in the desert, in search of a wife, fleeing his brother whom he's cheated, and using a rock for a pillow. Now I think all of us can attest to those times in our life 
when we've done what seemed right in our own eyes, and when we allowed our heart to lead the way and our heart to plan the steps, and we can all attest to where that left us in the end, or even those moments when we've allowed our flesh to win out that daily battle for those of us who know Christ. It's left us, it always leaves us in a place not so different than where Jacob finds himself in this moment. But here's the thing, as we saw in Romans 9 last week, that God chose Jacob not because of his good character or his natural ability or his ability to pursue holiness. He obviously pursues none of those characteristics. God chose Jacob according to his own purposes, God's own purposes. So as the one who has the birthright has the blessing, he is going to fulfill the covenant according to God's power and grace at work in his life. Not according to his own ability, not according to his own leading. Which means that from this point of darkness, God gets the greater glory, ultimately. And this too is what God is doing in our hearts as those of us who have been called according to his purposes. That as God through the working of his Holy Spirit has shown the light of the glory of the gospel into the darkness of our hearts as we then are raised to new life and begin to walk according to the Spirit, God gets the greater glory because of all the work that he is accomplishing in and through us. You see, then we become the trophy cases of God's grace to a dark and dying world. And this is what we are ultimately watching take place in the life of Jacob. As we know that God has called him, we know that God has said that he is to be the one whom he will fulfill his covenant through. And so we know that not based on Jacob's ability, but based on God's faithfulness, that this is what is going to happen. So let's watch as this continues to unfold. We read again, verse 12. And he dreamed. So I can only imagine how easy it was to dream with a rock for a pillow. He dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So there God is declaring that through Jacob, he is going to fulfill the covenant promise. No matter where Jacob finds himself now, God is going to fulfill that covenant promise. Continue reading. Verse 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So despite all of his conniving and his trickery, despite the fact that we have yet to read of any fruit of faith in Jacob's life at all, despite the fact that he is fleeing alone in the desert because of his own deception, God appears to him to reaffirm the covenant and the promise. Now did you catch, did you catch that? God begins his address by rooting his call to Jacob and his call to Abraham. 
and his call to Isaac, once again showing us the generational design of God's kingdom. That's what he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father. So the originator of the covenant, the first one, and the God of Isaac, the one whom I continued my covenant faithfulness to. And so this is where God is rooting his identity and is where he's rooting Jacob's identity as the faithful God and as Jacob as the one whom God is going to fulfill the covenant through next. And then he says, the land on which you lie. So there we see, this is the covenant promise. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So he doesn't even have a wife yet. That's where he's going in search of. And that's what he's on his way to seek. But God is telling him that this will be his land. Why? Not based on anything he's done, but based on his faithfulness as the covenant God. And he's telling him that he will have offspring that will outnumber the sands of the earth. And he will spread abroad to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. So that's everywhere. And so God is telling him this based off of God's covenant relationship with Jacob and with his family, with Isaac and with Abraham. Based off his faithfulness, God is saying, this is what I'm going to do in you and through you. And then he says, behold, I am with you and will keep you. You see that? Behold, I am with you. Verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Which means wherever you go means he's going to leave the land. And he said, I'm going to bring you back to it for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So I'll ask again just to make sure we're tracking. How much spiritual fruit have we seen displayed in Jacob's life? 0.00, right? And yet here God is guaranteeing the covenant promise, generational faith, and his very presence and power with Jacob at all times. You see, Southside, God is the sole director of our faith, of our life, excuse me. God is the sole director of our life. Jacob may have pursued life to his fulfillment and his desires according to his design, but God has been at work according to his good purposes. See, when we surrender to covenant faith, we surrender control of our life. When God calls us according to his grace, he does so according to his purposes. Jacob has done nothing but pursue life on his own terms from the moment he was born. And where has that gotten him? Again, alone in the desert with a rock as a pillow. But what is God doing? He's purposing all of it for his own glory and for Jacob's good. Because even though Jacob is alone in the desert of his own doing, God reveals himself to Jacob in the desert that Jacob might surrender his aimless wandering and instead move through the promised land with purpose as his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham had done. But even in looking at those two figures, we saw them stumble in their depravity. We saw them make attempts at doing life their own way. We even saw, after surrendering to covenant faith, them try to pursue their flesh or give in. And what did God do? 
He purposed their disobedience. He used their wandering to draw them back to himself and to bring himself glory. The challenge that lies at the heart of the story of the patriarchs is where do we find ourselves in our spiritual walk? Are we like Jacob, completely resistant to anything but his own way? Are we like Isaac, submissive to God's will and God's way, but timid at times when it comes to walking in complete obedience? Are we like Abraham, completely sold out for the word of God and his work in our life, but often tempted to slip back into putting ourselves in control? Because no matter which patriarch we identify with in this story, or if we find ourselves somewhere in between any of these characters, the main character here is God and his grace at work in the lives of these men to continue and carry on his faithful covenant promises despite their wonderings and actually how he uses their wonderings and their struggles for his purposes and his glory. Because the same grace that saved us is the same grace that keeps us. It was not because of Abraham's pre-existing goodness that God chose him. It was God's grace. Thus, it was not Abraham's faithfulness that sanctified him. It was God's faithful grace. And so what is Jacob's response to this overwhelming show of God's grace? Well, we, we read that as we keep reading in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, there was a little phrase there that Jacob said that is so telling as to the state of his heart when it comes to the things of God. Did you catch that in verse 16? Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. God alone opens the eyes of our hearts to see and believe. It wasn't until God revealed himself to Jacob that Jacob then realized that God was at work all around him. That these angels were ascending and descending according to God's command. They were ascending and descending. They were at work around him. But Jacob wasn't aware to that. He, wasn't he didn't know it. Until God revealed it to him and God spoke to him. See, God alone opens the eyes of our hearts to see and believe. Jacob has seen covenant faith lived out in his father Isaac, as we detailed last week. He's heard of how God called his grandfather Abraham based on his grace alone and nothing else. Yet to this point in his life, he has lived a life according to Jacob, not a life according to God's word. So he's been totally blind to everything that God was doing around him to accomplish his holy purposes. And you see, even though Jacob thought he was living life according to Jacob, God was at work purposing every selfish choice, every evil deed, every conniving concept. God was purposing all of it for his glory and ultimately for Jacob's good. Because this is where it's led him, alone in the dark 
And it's alone in the dark where God met him and revealed himself to him. And God is doing the same thing in our hearts and in our lives. Praise God that even my foolishness, my stubbornness, my pride is being purposed for his glory and ultimately for my good according to God's plan. Now that Jacob's heart has been opened to the reality of God, and has been moved into a proper fear and reverence and awe of God, as that's his response, he's afraid. And now that he sees that God is at work around him, let's see Jacob's continued response. Verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz, at the first. So, what was Jacob's response? He worships. The deceiver submits himself for the first time, promptly, properly, and wholly worships God. You see, this is the only proper response to God's grace at work in our lives and to our eyes being open to God, to the reality of God and who we are in light of him. You see, to know God is to worship him, period, point blank, end of story. To truly know God is to worship him. Now, that's not to say we don't have moments where we struggle to walk by the Spirit or moments when we allow our flesh to win the wrestling match, but that's where repentance and grace come into play so that as we fight these battles, we are doing so not by our own strength, but by the power of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, according to his glorious grace. Now, this would be the perfect place for this story to end, or at least this part of the story. But you'll notice we've got three more verses just in this chapter. So let's read Jacob's continued response. Then Jacob made a vow, <clears throat> saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob was doing so good. He had submitted himself to God in worship. He had set up an altar to worship God, poured oil on it, anointed it in light of the knowledge of God's overwhelming grace and glory. But then he tries to add his own conditions on. He stays true to his flesh. He allows his flesh to enter in in this moment. Now, if you'll notice, the result of Jacob's vow is not all that off base, but it's the heart of Jacob's vow. It's that if statement that distorts the good gift that God had just given him. Because God had just promised him everything that he, he makes, that he states in this vow. God's already said, I will give it to you. He just needs to submit to God in order to see this promise lived out. He doesn't need to make a vow. He doesn't need to say, if God will do this for me, then God will be my God. He doesn't need this. You see, the heart of Jacob's vow, as I said, is not off base, but it's that if statement that throws everything off. 
And it makes this a moment where we see that indeed, just like Father Abraham, Jacob has much growing to do in his faith. He's in need of much sanctification. If this was a statement rather than a conditional phrase, then it would be perfect. If you take that if out, then you see Jacob made a vow. God will be with me and will keep me. If you take that if out, God will be with me and will be, keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace and that the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar is God's house. And all that you give me or will give, all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. See, if this was not the conditional statement that Jacob makes it, it would be so much different. But you see, the real problem is with Jacob's vow is the conditions are on his terms and not God's. Also, the conditions are, append- are dependent upon his own ability and not God's faithfulness. See, how familiar does Jacob's approach to God sound right here? As we press into the story of Jacob, we realize that the story of Jacob is the story of us. But the reality is that we do not set the terms of our faith. We do not set the terms of our faith. Moses is recording all of these foundational events and wants the Israelites to realize that everything that has happened and will happen will be according to God's plans and purposes. And so too do we, in reading these truths, need to realize that God is working in our lives in the same way. That he is providing. He is showing himself faithful. And that even in those moments when we allow our flesh to win and we try to do things on our own conditions, God is purposing even that for his glory and for our good. You see what happens from here as we move on in the story. In chapter 29, Jacob continues on and he comes to a well and he sees this beautiful woman named Rachel. And he decides that he knows that that's who he wants to marry. And so he goes to her father and, and works out a deal. And he works for seven years. And the deceiver gets deceived. Because his father throws this huge party and gets Jacob distracted. And instead has Jacob marry his daughter Leah. And then Jacob Wakes up the next morning from his stupor to realize he's been duped. The thing that has happened to him is usually what he's doing to others. And so he's frustrated, but he loves Rachel. So he sets out to work another. And then he marries Rachel at the end of it. So then we see in, in chapter 30, as we move along, Jacob's sons are born. And Rachel's firstborn... As Rachel has much difficulty conceiving. She's upset as she sees Leah having all these children and Jacob providing Jacob with sons. But Rachel's firstborn as she cries out to God and we see that God remembers Rachel in verses 22 through 24 of chapter 30. And her firstborn son is Joseph whom we'll dive into 
the transition to Joseph next week. But then Jacob makes plans to flee, to get out of Laban's control. And in verse 31, in chapter 31, as we move along, and Jacob and his wives and all of his flocks flee, the Lord intervenes and tells Jacob to return. If you look at chapter 31, verse 1, now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. So he hears about Laban's sons being distraught and, and frustrated. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Just as he told Jacob that he would give the promised land to him, and just as he told Jacob that he would always be with him, he reminds him of that covenant promise in this moment. And so they flee. But fleeing Laban means you're returning to Esau. And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 32. 32, verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. So upon preparing to return to his homeland, Jacob sees an angel of the Lord, another clear indication that he's returning to the place where God has called him to be and that God has promised to give him and God has promised to be with him forever and with his descendants, but there's still a big problem looming on the horizon. And that's his brother Esau. See, Esau has not forgotten all of Jacob's deception, all of Jacob's cheating, and is eagerly awaiting Jacob's return. And this is an exact fulfillment of what God told their mother, Rebekah, while the two children were struggling within her womb, that two nations are within you, and they will be at strife with one another. And so Jacob decides to send a messenger ahead. See, Jacob, we've seen him, he's conniving, he's smart. He sends a messenger ahead that will soften the blow, so to speak, just to kind of see if it will help Esau simmer down a little bit. This way, his brother will know the manner in which he returns. He wants his brother to know that he's not returning in secret. He is not returning with an army. He's not returning, however. He is returning, however, with great wealth. And so he sends the messenger ahead to tell Esau, I return with oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. And Jacob explicitly tells the messenger to express that he desires to find favor in Esau's sight. So Jacob is going all out to submit himself to Esau because he knows there's no way he defeats his brother in battle. And as we move along, when the messenger returns, he tells Jacob, your brother is coming to meet you with 400 men. Oh, okay. So this is the moment when Jacob realizes the consequences of his deception and his depravity. This is the moment when he realizes, oh, I don't think I can charm or swindle my way out of this one. And let's read Jacob's response upon hearing his brothers coming with 400 men. Verse 7 of 32. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him 
and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps. So did you catch, did you know, did that uh, beginning of verse 7 sound a little familiar right there? What was Jacob's response upon hearing of the might and the power of his brother Esau? He was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, remind me, church, what was Jacob's response to God's initial appearance to him? He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? So one of these was a proper fear and informs how he is to live the rest of his life. The other fear, his fear of Esau, displays possibly a lack of trust in God's promise. Because what was it that God promised Jacob back in chapter 28 in verse 15? Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. What is it that God told Jacob when he told him to return to the land? It's time to return to the land that I will give you and I will be with you. So if Jacob remembers God's promise and maintained his proper fear of the Lord then he would have no need to fear Esau or his men. You see, when we have a proper reverential fear and awe of the one who created us and who knows us and calls us according to his purposes, then we truly have no reason to fear any person, place, or thing that this broken world can devise. The real issues occur when we do not plant ourselves beside the never-ending, life-giving stream of God's word. Why? Because our hearts are naturally resistant to God's word. Do you ever wonder why it's so easy for us to memorize random facts or statistics, but incredibly laborious for us to memorize God's word? Do you ever wonder why we can remember the most pointless of details while struggling to clearly outline clear truths from God's word. We all struggle with this. Why? Because a broken and depraved heart is resistant to God's word by nature. So this is why time and again, we must submit ourselves to the Spirit's work in our life, pick up our pickaxe and set out to mine God's word time and time again with the full assurance that the treasure is there. We just have to wrestle with ourselves and wrestle with our flesh and subdue it by submitting to his power and his authority and his work within us so that we can see the beauty and the purpose and the splendor of God's grace to us through his word. So just as our hearts are naturally resistant to God's word, our hearts will not rest until they are rooted in God's word. Because our hearts are naturally resistant only because they're broken. But it is only in God's word and living out God's word that we find the best possible life there is. St. Augustine in his book, The Confessions, wrote this, Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we men who are a due part of your creation, long to praise you. We also carry out, carry our mortality about with us. We carry the evidence of our sin and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. You arouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests 
in you. You see, in that book, The Confessions, Augustine is looking back on his life and seeing how all of his mistakes, all of his sinfulness, all of his wanderings were used and purposed by God to bring him to who he is the moment that he's writing the book. And this is what he writes, that you have drawn us and made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But this is what Jacob has struggled to see from that very moment in the desert. So rather than respond with total peace and assurance and the promise of God's word, Jacob's initial response is one of anxiety and fear and panic. However, this anxiety and fear and panic drives Jacob to the only place that he has left to turn. You see, when God's word pierces our hearts, when we taste of his grace, we may have times when we journey elsewhere, when we pursue our desires, when we live life our way. But if our hearts have truly been impacted, then we will never be the same. Sometimes it takes us driving ourselves off a cliff into the bottom of, our pit, of a pit for our eyes to be open to the truth that God's way is best. And so from this desperate moment comes the first earnest cry and prayer to God that we see from Jacob. See, if you'll remember that first time God revealed himself to, us, to Jacob in chapter 28, Jacob's response, initial response was to worship and then he put conditions on it. But now let's read verse nine. What is Jacob's response here? And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Now, Jacob had split the camps into two, hoping that if Esau attacked one, that he could then flee with the other, right? So I, now he said, I crossed with nothing. I now have enough that I can split my people into two camps. Verse 11, we continue to read Jacob's response. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. You see, now Jacob is praying God's word back to God. He's claiming the promises. He's admitting his own sinfulness before God. You see, in life's darkest moments, God's word is both our light and our guide. God's word doesn't just illuminate our path. God's word is the path itself. All his life, Jacob has struggled to see the way forward because he has been too preoccupied with driving himself into further darkness at his own direction. See, God is at work even in those times when we don't see him. Even in those times when we have driven ourselves into deeper darkness. God is sovereignly using all of that for his glory and our good. You see, Jacob didn't respond correctly when God presented himself and spoke directly to him. But now that he has seen the results of his depravity face to face 
and he has nowhere else to turn, he turns to the only place where he knows, and that's God. Immediately after his desperate plea to the Lord, Jacob sends one of his servants ahead with a large gift. So he pleads to the Lord. Jacob sends this servant ahead with a gift of male and female goats, male and female ewes and lambs, camels, calves, cows, bulls, and donkeys. In other words, please don't kill me. (laughs) So he spaces these out, each drove by drove. So that as each drove reaches Esau, then the person will say, Jacob is behind me. And then the next drove would come. Jacob is behind me. So each one is passing ahead of him to Esau first. And in total, he sends 550 animals ahead. And that night, Jacob couldn't sleep. He's he's too distressed thinking about what lies ahead. So he takes another action. In the middle of the night, he sends his family across a dangerous river, the Jabbok, to safety while he waits at camp by himself, alone, in the desert, in the dark, just as we saw him at the beginning this morning. Now, let's read what happens here as Jacob is again alone. So we're going to skip to verse 24. Verse 24 of chapter 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. You see, whereas we began with Jacob alone in the dark in the desert, attempting to set the terms of his faith, we end this morning with Jacob now literally and spiritually clinging to God. And when he started, Jacob was making an if-then oath oath to God. Now he's praying in earnest and wrestling with God, desiring God's blessing. So rather than saying if, he's now saying bless me. See, the story of Jacob is the story of us. Stubborn sinners in total dependence on God's unstoppable grace. As Jacob wrestles with God here, God tells him, what is your name? Tell me your name. And he said, Jacob. You see, to, because of the etymology and the meaning of these names, for Jacob to say his name was not only to say who he was or what he was called or what he was addressed by, but it was to say, I am deceiver. 
I am he who clutches the heel. And so God says, you're no longer deceiver, but you are Israel, he who wrestles with God. Or the more literal translation is God wrestles. But the the contextual meaning here seems to mean that he who wrestles with God. So now he's no longer deceiver, but he's one who has wrestled with God. See, Jacob knew who this person was because the person had simply touched his hip socket and knocked it out of joint. But he says, what is your name? So that's why the response is, why is it that you ask my name? And then that's Jacob's response. He called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God. And Peniel means the face of God. So God's unstoppable, relentless grace is the true main element at play in this story. And it's the true main element at play in our story. Just like Jacob, now Israel It is only when we come to the end of ourselves that we realize the goodness of God's grace to us and that we can't resist it. No matter how hard our hardened heart pushes us in the opposite direction, this is why we need the cross. Because at the cross, the ultimate price was paid. And at the cross, we are called to crucify our flesh and follow him. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you that your grace is unstoppable, because we admit we are stubborn sinners, and that we are in total dependence on that unstoppable grace. So we pray now that as we have a time to respond through song, that you would help us to respond appropriately how you've dealt with our hearts through your word whether that's in repentance and coming to faith or whether that's in simply shouting and praise at the grace that you have shown us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.